Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and is affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and I'm coming to you live from my apartment. I hope everyone is staying safe out there. As the coronavirus spreads and governments work to keep everyone inside, they face a decision of how to inject capital into their ill-faring economies. I'm going to give you a brief list of what some governments have done, which might change by the time you actually listen to this. The U.S. government is getting close to passing legislation on Wednesday night to inject about $2 trillion U.S. dollars of capital into the economy. That's around 10% of our GDP. Germany is injecting 800 billion US dollars. Japan has increased its quantitative easing and is injecting tens of billions into their economy. And in China, where the outbreak began, its government has already injected hundreds of billions into its economy that is just getting started again after it had to be grounded to a halt due to the spread of COVID in its mainland. But China is also promoting an additional measure to help shore up its economy and its market. They're called coronavirus bonds. Since early February, and as of this recording, over 100 Chinese businesses, ranging from airlines to drug distributors, have raised over 100 billion USD by selling virus control bonds. And many of the buyers have been state-run banks in mainland China. And to make sure that these bonds can get out at record speed and create liquidity in the market, the government has cut the approval time for getting these bonds issued. But the problem is that they're coming under criticism by some investors because people are worried that these bonds aren't really going to be used to address the actual fallout from COVID and that companies with poor fundamentals are issuing bonds at a lightning speed. And to discuss this today, I'm joined by Meghna Mehta, who researches the green bond market for us. And then after that, I'm joined by Rick Marshall, my governance consigliere and similarly isolated colleague, to discuss how many at-risk older folks sit upon the boards of large public corporations and how this might affect the ability of certain essential companies to be run during the COVID crisis. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. Hey, Magna, before we start, uh, since you're in India right now, I'm just curious how everything's going and how the Indian government is responding to the coronavirus. Uh, the country is in complete lockdown, so there's a curfew. I mean, you can't um, go on the roads uh, unless, you know, you have a very strong reason. You need to justify it to the police. You have police stopping everyone. You have police stopping cars. And um, everything shut down, like food delivery shut down. Um, everyone's stocking, you know, groceries and perishables and things like that. Um, because the government has really ordered everyone to stay indoors and um, uh, not really get in contact with people. Oh, I'm sorry, that sounds really awful. It, because it's this weird dichotomy emerging between health and economic safety, where we now need to keep people safe from the virus, but also keep people safe from abject poverty. 
Though I am fascinated by these coronavirus bonds as a way to do that. They are being issued by private sector companies, obviously. And to be called coronavirus bonds, the, the companies need to use a minimum of 10% of the proceeds raised to combat the virus in some sort of way. And the companies are able to issue these bonds quicker than normal, and the cost of servicing the bonds are actually lower, uh, which is a benefit of the bonds. And for everyone that is listening that's not familiar, when I say lowering the cost of servicing these bonds, I mean lowering the cost of what the company has to pay people that buy the bonds. And they're doing that by around 3%, which is very significant in the bondholder world. Um, but most of these bonds are just being bought by state-run enterprises. I think it's around 80% at the moment. Do you think that's just because investors are kind of staying away or are they unsure that the money that they're giving for these bonds will actually be used uh, for efforts to combat the virus? Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't of course know, but I would I would guess that, you know, the, the these bonds are disguised as COVID-related bonds and they aren't really only for COVID, right? Otherwise, um, they would if they were only for COVID, they would be sector-specific. They would have much more than 10% mandate to fund COVID. Uh, so I think these bonds are really by the government to get entities to increase their liquidity, start running their businesses again, um, spend some money on COVID, sure, but not really focus on COVID. I mean, you're not going to have an airline operator or a gas company you know that have issued these bonds to really focus on COVID. I mean it's not their core strength at all and they're not there's not much that they're going to be able to do. Um but the aim seems to be to inject liquidity and um uh maybe even help them get cheaper debt. Uh but I, I don't think that this is uh, you know a program that China has created for really for COVID management. I think that there are much um uh, the, the purpose is really to, to get economic revival. Do you think it's going to work? I mean, in, in the same way that green bonds are said to be used to stimulate environmentally concerned projects, do you think these social bonds will be used to stimulate uh, either socially good or, or useful economic stimulus in some way? Mm, yes, I do, uh, in some cases, right? So what's happening is that, you know, before we... Before I answer that question, I'd just like to say that it's very important to study these bonds. I mean, you know, issuance of these bonds has started just in early February. So we have around 125 odd cases of such bonds being issued and 125 consequently such prospectuses that we've seen. And um, it's interesting that, you know, while uh, some of these bonds are being, some of the proceeds rather, are being used to fight COVID-related purposes, right? Like, say, for example, 10% or, you know, say even 50% funding is going to, say, purchase masks or um, XYZ, you know, related um, pharma, right? It could be anything. A lot of uh, issuers are actually taking advantage of this opportunity to refinance older debt, which is more expensive. This is very clear in their prospectus as well. And which is why, um, you know, these bonds have come under criticism as well, because they, they may not necessarily serve the purpose, um, um, you know, of, of really solving epidemic related issues. Um, just a small percentage of proceeds will actually be used for that purpose. As, as I understand, there's just one bond that has 100 percent proceeds towards uh, COVID related issues. The rest of them don't. Wow. One bond. You know, this kind of reminds me of this thing called social impact bonds that I used to be really keen on. 
And they were issued in the U.S. with an explicit social good that was needed to be completed before the bond buyers could get paid. Uh, if the proceeds for one of the bonds, for example, was used to give money to proven programs that cut down recidivism or the rate at which people that were in jail returned to jail. Uh, and they did this calculation and said that uh, to house a prisoner, uh, it costs the state around, say, 50000 USD a year. And so if these programs keep people from relapsing into crime, then the state saved 50K. And so the issuer of the bond, which was usually a U.S. state, um, would then pay the buyers 50K per prisoner that didn't go back to jail. And it worked pretty well. And it was it caught on until they tried to get it into education in Chicago. And everyone said, well, how can you tell if a program actually helped a child to read? Because the payoff was based on literacy rates. And if the literacy rates were increased because of a program, then the state knew there would be this savings along the line and they would pay the, the bond buyers a certain percentage of uh, what the state would be saved. And, and what everyone thought was that these investment banks that were supporting programs that may or may not work were just making off with the state's money and not actually helping kids. And so that bond kind of fell apart. But these, I guess these are a little bit different because they are purported to give funds, uh, a minimal amount of funds, but still funds for programs that would combat a virus outbreak. And it's kind of easy to name those, you know, uh, the building of ventilators, uh, better rubber gloves, um, ensuring that vaccines are created, the things of that like. Uh, so do you see these type of bonds, these kind of viral uh, coronavirus type bonds taking off in other regions that really do need a lot more funds to fight the coronavirus that is still spreading with alarming speed? No, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was studying this for a couple of other regions. Uh, I don't see it happening. I think the way other regions are looking at this is that their central banks themselves will issue bonds and themselves will inject money um, where required. But they aren't really asking private entities to issue these you know, COVID-related bonds that the banks will then purchase. So the model seems to be seems to be different. Um, and I wonder if you have this ten percent money dedicated to COVID-related problems, right? Like, so you've had an airline operator in China issue a COVID-related bond, but ninety percent of the proceeds are going to refinance older debt. So where's the you know where is it fighting the epidemic? Um, and probably because of this, um, uh, it won't be. You know, this this model is not likely to be followed across the across the globe because it does it might not really be effective in fighting the epidemic. And on that note, with a handful of indoor grown spice, Rick Marshall joins me to discuss how many at-risk older folks are on corporate boards. But Rick, before we do that, Megna just got done talking about the use of coronavirus bonds, and she mentioned what other governments are doing uh, at the moment and will likely do. Um, and it reminds me of the debates that are being held all over the world because a lot of money is being injected into our economies due to COVID, and people are trying to ensure that the capital gets used in the most utilitarian manner, like how the U.S. Uh, is using their possible $2 trillion stimulus package, and, and people are debating how it's going to be used in our economy. Some people are saying, no, this cannot be used for share buybacks, and it has to be used to take care of the unemployed and un underemployed workforce. And I just wanted to hear what you thought about the stimulus package in the U.S. and whether 
all that money might be funneled into the wrong areas, similar to the possibility of coronavirus bonds. Well, I do have concerns that some of these companies um, could potentially use these funds in ways that aren't intended. I mean, we've got a crisis that needs to be addressed, um, but we're also talking about bailing out companies that had previously gotten themselves into trouble for for reasons that had nothing to do with coronavirus. And I'm thinking uh, specifically about about companies like Boeing uh, or, or Wells Fargo, for example. Uh, I mean, the, these companies um, were already kind of up against it, if, if you will, and, and now they're, they're facing a new crisis, and that exacerbates the original problem. Uh, but there's a, a, a very real risk that the, the, the bailout funds will be used in a way that confuses the, the, two, the two very, very different uh, circumstances. Right. And what's interesting is the decision for how to use the bailout funds that are given to each company will likely be made at the board level. And the reason that's interesting during this epidemic is because of the age of a lot of these board members and the fact that, as I'm sure everyone is aware, the coronavirus disproportionately affects older and at-risk populations. And what you and our colleague Alan Brett found was that... uh, There are 69 companies in the Acqui Index where 50% or more of the directors on the board are 70 or older. 31 of these are U.S. companies, 10 are in Japan, while China only has like two, uh, and most other markets, including Italy, don't have any. There are 84 CEOs who are 70 or older. 31 of these CEOs are again at companies in Japan, 23 are at U.S. companies. Uh, And there are uh, 469 companies in China that don't have any directors at all who are 70 or over. And there are only 117 U.S. companies who meet that standard. And what's interesting about your stats and what you noted to me before our call was that it's usually the U.S. and that has better governance oversight. And you would assume they would have companies in that region would have less older board members than, say, uh, areas in the emerging markets. But what happens if a board member loses a director due to COVID and is operating at half its capacity or loses its CEO or CEO combined chairman, chairperson? What what many companies are facing right now is a, a kind of governance risk that few, if any, of these companies will have anticipated. What what do companies do if if some portion of the board is incapacitated? Um, you know, companies do occasionally lose a CEO, and and boards can step up and implement a succession plan or um, um, hastily put somebody in as a temporary measure. Um, but in a situation like this, where the potential is higher, and where whole portions of the board may in fact not be available to meet or um, may may be may be ill themselves I mean these create questions for which no one really has the answer uh, more broadly um, many companies are looking at situations where they're going to have to either postpone or try and implement a, a virtual annual meeting uh, because they have actions pending that require the approval of, of shareholders. Um, and there are markets where virtual annual meetings aren't 
normally allowed. Uh, so in those markets, such as Germany, you know, the government has had to step in and say, okay, we're going to have a, a temporary measure in place where we c we can allow this under certain circumstances. So um, at a very, very basic level, uh, the entire corporate governance ecosystem is being disrupted by this virus in ways that I don't think anyone had previously anticipated. And that's it for our show. Thanks to Megna and Rick for joining me today to discuss, well, basically to discuss the coronavirus with an ESG twist, and to Alan Brett, who helped out a lot but wasn't featured. And thank you so much for listening. I hope you are staying safe and as calm as possible and doing what is needed during these strange times. I'll talk to you next week. MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or produ product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.